0: and welcome to CardiCast, a glam podcast brought to you by New Cardigan. Chatting today with Nicola Laurent, who is a Senior Project Archivist, Finder Connect Web Resource at University of Melbourne, and the President of the Australian Society of Archivists, as well as being the new Professional Program Coordinator of the International Council of Archives. Uh, Thank you, Nicola. That's a lot of job titles there. So I might just start by asking you a little bit about, I guess, each role and what it means to you and, and how you sort of how you're working in, and sort of managing the three roles at the same time? Hi, Nick, good to talk to you. Um, <laughs> yes,
1: I do I do have quite a lot on my plate, I guess. So I'll start with my paid role, I guess. That's the Senior Project Archivist role on the Finding Connect web resource. So for those who don't know, Finding Connect is a, a resource for anyone who spent time in out-of-home care between 1920 and 1989 um, to find out more about the orphanages and children's homes that existed then and more importantly the records that we know to exist now and where people can go to access them. So I like to think of Finding Connect sometimes as a bit of a giant finding aid to help people on their journey to access records because it's a really important resource for people who identify um, as either forgotten Australians, former child migrants, members of the stolen generations, care leavers, care experienced people. So I'm really fortunate to to work on such an important project and one that has such a direct impact for people. So I really appreciate that. I guess at the moment, mainly we do research into the homes that existed. And then also, as I mentioned, the records that exist. And we spend a lot of time describing those records in an accessible way so that people can know what records can expect to find and how they can go about accessing those records. Um, And the other main item that I'm working on at the moment for Finding Connect is we're working on redeveloping the site to improve functionality. So that's quite a big part of my my day job at the moment. Moving on to my two volunteer roles, so I'll start with the Australian Society of Archivists and being the president there. I've been involved in the ASA for some years now. I've kind of worked my way up, I guess, and I've been the president for the last year. It's certainly an all-encompassing role for a volunteer to take on, but it's such an interesting role and I've learned so much and I get so much from being in the role that I never expected that I would. You really get exposed to all the different areas of the archival profession and also the glam profession more broadly because we do work cross-sector with other organizations, including ALIA and RIMPA, and for events, obviously, like Information Awareness Month and, and items like that. So it's a, it's a really fun kind of opportunity, I think, to get involved with the associations, because I just think you can learn so much through them. But I won't lie, it, it is a lot of work as well. But I think, I, yeah, I just remain... I look on the bright side and look at all that I'm learning that I I wouldn't otherwise get the opportunity to do. We're currently bringing on the new council because we just recently had our annual general meeting. So that's really exciting. I'm getting to meet the new faces who are going to make up the council for the next year. And we're putting together our work plan on the areas that we're going to focus on for the next year. So that's always an exciting time to be part of it. And then my final role for the International Council on Archives So I coordinate their New Professionals Program, and I was lucky enough to go through the program in 2016 myself, so I certainly feel very connected to this role. So basically, the ICA supports a group of about six new professionals to come together for the year, and ideally, they're supported to attend the ICA conference or congress that's happening. I was fortunate to go to Seoul in 2016. That was an amazing Congress. Unfortunately, the last couple of years since I've taken over the role, obviously we haven't had a conference happen, but we are still supporting the new professional group and we're supporting them to undertake a project that will further support the whole international new professional community. So the current cohort are looking at digitization strategies, why organizations choose to digitize what they do and what are their reasons behind that? So what is it resourcing or is it because of donors or yeah, just kind of where that's coming from and whether it means that we are continuing to engage with traditional archival practices or whether we are using digitization as a way to kind of challenge some of those norms and make new material accessible. So it's a really exciting project to, or program, I should say, to work on because you get to meet six amazing individuals each year and work really closely alongside them. And we support them to present in webinars. And we've got the ICA virtual conference coming up at the end of the month where they're going to present their first findings of their project. And then we'll also support this cohort to come to Rome to, to finish off their presentation on what they find out with their survey results and the conversations that they're having around digitization. So I'm really lucky to be able to do all of these various activities. I do recognize that not everyone's able to, but I think I've personally gained a lot from volunteering my time, as well as undertaking my work for the profession.
0: That's really interesting that, you know, talking about working with these young new professionals, Or well, they're not always necessarily young. Is, is, that the, is that right? Like sometimes you might have um, new professionals yeah. come in at, you know, later stage or had a changing career or
1: is that Definitely. Right?
0: Yeah. Definitely.
1: So, yeah, the, the reason, there's very specific reasons. They used to often use the phrase young professionals, but we've really worked against that and tried to use the phrase new professionals. Um, and the ICA defines that as anyone. Who's within the first five years of entering the profession? So we do get a range of, of age groups covered, which is which makes it extra interesting. I think when people bring their kind of previous work life experiences in, you really get the breadth of experience, which is yeah, so interesting.
0: I've spoken to a few sort of students that have recently graduated that sort of work in you know, have studied in glam fields and I've, you know, they've sort of said the last two years has been a real struggling kind of time for students in some ways. Like, you you know, you might have the resources to study online, but you don't have the in-person contact with your fellow students. I know how important, you know, the students that I studied with are still really important to me to to this day, of course, you know, we've got a lot, you know, very strong bonds. Do you think it's been really tough on students sort of coming out of graduating just recently during the COVID times? Have you noticed the students you've spoken to? Definitely.
1: Um, A lot of them have mentioned that it's been much more difficult to kind of make connections, I think, not only with their fellow students, but also kind of entering the profession. They found it more difficult because as I think as we all know, it can be, more difficult to have a casual conversation on Zoom, for example, um, than if you are able to attend an event and kind of bump into people and meet them in person, it's a really different dynamic. And I think that that's something that people are really missing. I think another thing related to that has been the kind of lack of internships that students have been able to undertake in the last two years, especially when we think of the archival profession, For lots of people, that's a really physical role and the internship can be really important or the placement, depending on on what kind of course you're studying, can be a really important component of that. And again, another way for you to kind of make connections and see a different side to the profession outside of your study. So I think that they are two quite important elements that students are having to kind of navigate differently to to those of us who've gone before and have been fortunate with that. So I think, yeah, we're lucky with the program in that we are able to give each of the new professionals a mentor. So they are able to get kind of more specific advice. And one of the things we've worked on with this cohort is introducing them to some experts in the archival profession that they would probably have got exposed to at a conference otherwise, but without that conference just trying to create some, some networks for them so that they also feel like
0: they've created those communities that we would normally do. So when you studied, you studied a Master of Business Information Systems at Monash Uni and you had a semester where you went to, to Boston to the Simmons College. Did you, do you have fond memories of that time as a student yourself?
1: I loved it. I love being a student. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, so I did 18 or three semesters at Monash and I did one semester overseas at Simmons College and that was my choice entirely. I originally started in the graduate diploma um, and was fully intending to become only a librarian and it was only once I got into the Monash course that I discovered the wonderful world of archives (laughs) and all it had to offer and I realised hey, this sounds more up my alley. So I transferred into the master's, but just the way the course was designed at that time and the subjects I'd taken in my first two semesters meant that I was going to have to do an extra, the fourth semester, I couldn't do it in the 18 months. They were like, you've got three elective subjects so you can do whatever you want. And I was like, huh, this feels like an opportunity to do something fun. I'd gone straight through with my honours degree undergrad at Monash as well. So by that point, I'd been at Monash for five and a half years. And I thought, can I go overseas? And they were they said, huh, no one's ever done that from the library and archives course before. But we don't see why not. Um, I have to say my um, lecturers are very helpful in assisting me to yeah, take up this opportunity. But it was really interesting to see. The difference in education in our sector, for example, at Simmons College, I was able to undertake a subject specifically on academic libraries and I took another one on digital stewardship. I think my final one was on cultural heritage. So they were much more specific subjects, I guess, than what I had been exposed to over here. So yeah, it was really interesting. I made some great friends in Boston as well, who I'm yeah, lucky to remain in good contact with so I really enjoyed it. We definitely recommend.
0: <laughs> it's really I was actually thinking before we um started the recording today. I was thinking back to sort of the time when you actually hosted a Cardi Party for New Cardigan or you, you were our guest speaker. And that was back in June 2016. It was um <laughs> which is so funny because you know you just haven't thought about something for a while and it was um yep. it was New Cardigan's first birthday. And unfortunately it was actually before we started doing like recording. Cardi Parties for CardiCast because it was before CardiCast existed. So because <laughs> we actually started CardiCast, it was like August 2016. Um, so it was only literally a, a few months later, which was funny because we had this guest speaker from Canada. Her name um, is Misty Demio, and oh, yes. digital archivist and amazing writes open source software for archives and incredible person, Misty is and because we had this it was our first sort of guest speaker from from Canada we decided at the time um, Justine was like i'm going to try and let, let's start recording and start a podcast so it was all all kind of began then and then i started thinking how yeah when we had the when you actually were our guest speaker for in June 2016 do you remember when you made some gluten-free cupcakes I still remember the the decoration (laughs) I think it was like find and connect new cardigan it was like it was our first birthday it was so nice and the nicest cupcakes I think everyone ate them in like two seconds they were like they
1: were going like hotcakes. Um, yeah, I certainly didn't have any to take home. <laughs> that's right.
0: That's right. It was such a great, I, you know, I kind of, sometimes I kind of get a bit nostalgic because it was a time when, you know, before it felt like a, you know, when we could kind of gather and eat together and, you know, there was just yes. none, none of this COVID stuff. But it was also really cool because I remember you talking really passionately about Broken Links and your work for Find and Connect. And I just yep. thought, you know, I just loved that you were so passionate and, and one thing that I really remember, even though we don't have the recording, you know, it's in my mind from that day, <laughs> the thing that really drove through was that you were very passionate for people accessing these websites that are having, you know, emotional experiences, accessing the material in the first place. If they come across a broken link, how um, kind of devastating that can be. I don't know if you use those words, but that's kind of in my mind, that's sort of what I took away from the that yeah. talk. Do you still think that that's a really important part of your work to this day? Yeah, definitely. I'm actually in the process
1: of organising a talk at the moment for the ICA conference. I've I've got a presentation there, and one of the parts I'll be talking about is the importance of thinking about broken links. And yeah, it it came through my work on Planning Connect that we run a broken links report on the website and. I have to say, I'm very fortunate not to be the one who has to do that anymore. So it definite shout out to my colleague, Connie, who has taken on that role. But we run the broken links report and we try and fix the links and we look at when the content has changed. And that's something called content drift, because it's something that we found was really important for our community, kind of that the content went where it said it was going to go. And that people didn't end up facing 404 areas or broken pages and obviously it's not something we can completely prevent but it's certainly something that we can raise awareness about and we have tried to do that particularly when talking with the archival and library profession in Australia. I think it's just it's so interesting like as a kind of usual user of the web I guess I'm certainly frustrated when things don't don't work as I want them to. Or you know, when you're reading an article from a few years ago and you're like, oh, perfect. I want to follow that link and find out where that's gone. And obviously, and then it's not there. And you're like, oh, this is so frustrating. I have to go off and find it myself or go through these other avenues. But we know that the users of our website traditionally they don't have such high levels of literacy. They didn't have such a good education in school and things like that. So being faced with these things isn't just frustrating for them. It it goes beyond that. And it's really important that, yeah, we try and do the best for our users and and make things as accessible as possible. And I just think that's such an important lesson for everyone who's putting content out on the web to think about. We don't wanna be, yeah, making people have negative experiences when using our sites. I think it's really critical that we continue to advocate for better access And that includes fixing broken links or or making them not happen in the first place. Yeah. If you've got no other way, you're changing a system, everything has to change Then being really good and being really clear with your communications and and letting people know. And that is something we have found has improved. We've definitely had archival organizations get in touch when their catalogs have changed and they know a lot of their links are going to break so that we can preempt that change and things. But it's certainly something I, remain
0: passionate about definitely because I think it's just so important what you're saying I think it's wonderful to you know for, for a lot of people working on cultural heritage sites for example where you are sort of constantly got coming across broken broken links seems like a big <laughs> issue um and yeah. when you're sort of doing research and it, it can be frustrating so but it, I mean adding that added like level of like an emotional kind of barrier to re, to receiving or things that are about your personal life or your family history or that kind of thing, I can see how that could be a a huge issue. So I think it's great to know that people at Find and Connect, you know, your colleagues and yourself are, you know, taking it so seriously and working on it and it's good to hear. Like it's fantastic actually. And I know that's something that you've also been doing with a colleague at the e-scholarship resource centre did I say that right? E-Scholarship Research Centre. But we have
1: technically moved to the Faculty of Arts now oh, because unfortunately right. the ESRC did, did close down in June right.
0: uh, of
1: 2020. But, yes, we, we were know. colleagues there.
0: Oh, I know. It's so sad to hear that. Like, I remember when that happened and it was a bit of a like, oh. Because, I I mean, I always heard such great things coming out of the E-Scholarship Research Centre. But, of, of course, you know, A lot of research centers have probably had a lot of changes over the last two years, I would say, you know, just university sectors going through a lot of change and a whole lot of stuff there that, you know, difficult to even sort of, I've talked to colleagues in different universities and I just know how tough it is. So shout out to any university people listening and going through a tough time right now. But I know that you've been working with Kirsten Wright and you've created the trauma-informed approach to managing archives which is an online training course as well as the out of home care records toolkit for um australian society of archivists i was just wanting yeah. to ask you I, i'm just really intrigued to see like do you know what the uptake has been like have, has there been a lot of use of these courses online i think they're fantastic resources so yeah have you had any feedback on these courses
1: yeah, yeah, we have actually. We were, we've been really fortunate. Um, people have got in touch and things once they've gone through the course and stuff. And certainly, the trauma-informed approach to managing archives course has, has been a little bit more popular, I think, because people see more more breadth in that course just from the, the naming of it, I guess, and also because I think there's really not very much on the topic area within GLAM more broadly, so. We are aware of people who've taken the course from libraries, from museums, and we certainly, despite the name talking about managing archives, and obviously it does does lean that way, it, it can certainly be applied more broadly across the GLAM profession. So yeah, we've been really fortunate and actually linked to that, we are currently, we have developed workshops to run alongside those courses. So we delivered them for the first time at the ASA conference just last month and we'll be planning to run them probably early next year now, just waiting for the COVID situation to settle down a little bit. But we think it's really important to to keep talking about these areas. The trauma-informed archival practice is something that we're really passionate about and also making sure that people are aware of vicarious trauma and are able to do what they can to get preventative support and then if there is an issue to get support as well. So that's been an, yeah, certainly an area that we're continuing to do work on. We're also presenting at the AHA conference, the history conference at the end of November. So that'll be our first time talking with um, professional historians around this because obviously they are regular users of the archives of which we are talking about the material being traumatic from. So yeah, we've been really lucky. We definitely, there is a feedback kind of survey at the end that people can do of the courses and we're really lucky that yes yeah, the feedback has all been really positive we're hoping the workshops are going to complement those they're not going to replace them so the workshops are more around the practicalities and having those really practical discussions about how you can implement these ideas into your workplace and making sure that you've got some plans for how you can go off and make both like quick win changes and then some of those longer term changes and that you feel supported and you know there are others out there also doing the same thing because we know sometimes when you do an online course and you can do it all at your own pace, but it can can feel like you're maybe the only one who's trying to make that change. So that's what we're hoping to make more visible with the workshops is that you're not the only one trying to make a difference. There
0: are others out there as well. Um, Just thinking about vicarious trauma and just the kind of traumatic material, I think I've been thinking about this a little bit myself, but about, you know, the number of records being produced (laughs) during COVID times, just even in every workplace, it's probably just skyrocketed. But how, you know, triggering sometimes it can be, even just looking at, you know, when you feel too close to it, like it's happening right now and we're trying to sort of... You know, my, my workplace is trying to sort of look at it and collect and examine these stories. But the people, the practitioners, like the curators or the, the historians that are collecting this information, or oral historians and things like that, they're also experiencing the trauma as it's happening. I wonder like how, you know, I think this course could be really useful, across, like you said, across GLAM, but but even people that are trying to manage records around COVID right now, people have been experiencing it in different ways. Do you think that I'm on a sort of on a track that you've been thinking about yourself or is that, what do you think? Do you think this is a sort of a time that's just feels like a traumatic time in lots of ways? Maybe we won't really fully understand until in the years to come. Um, What's your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, I think it is really difficult
1: at the moment one of the things through the readings that we've done over the past few years is realized how pervasive trauma really is. Um, and statistics are often quoted at 90% of people will experience a traumatic event in their lifetime. And we often don't kind of understand the definitions of trauma, I guess, in how it plays out. So it doesn't doesn't need to lead to physical harm for it to be a traumatic event or anything like that. So certainly the pandemic has created a lot of trauma for a lot of people. And I think that that's yet something, but you're definitely right. It's definitely gonna play out for years to come. I guess during this time, Kirsten, myself, and Makayla Hart have created the Trauma-Informed Archives Community of Practice. Um, and that's an international community that we've created to bring people together because people have been talking about how difficult it is to do some of this work and how we need to raise more awareness around vicarious or secondary trauma and emotional responses to records. One of the, we're trying to have quarterly meetings. So it just got set up in May. So it's still quite early days. We're having quarterly meetings and our August meeting was actually on COVID collecting. And well, we had, uh, few presenters and each kind of spoke about their experiences of collecting COVID materials. Yeah, what it has meant for them, where it's been a good, bad experience, and kind of how they're very aware of the trauma in the records as well, but also in the process of the collecting. And one of the articles that got referred to is by Ira Tanzi and she spoke about no one no one owes their trauma to you. And in that, it's talking about collecting institutions. And it's just a really interesting thing for people to consider why they're collecting the material they are. And whether it's because it's in immediate response to what's happening or because it's actually going to, it's part of your normal collecting kind of practice. And I just think it's, yeah, it's really interesting to kind of consider some of these, these issues. And it was so interesting to hear from our, our presenters on their experiences in, yeah, collecting COVID and kind of how different it's been for everyone. Because obviously for some that means social media collecting because there's been so much so much shared on social media but also I think it's the length of time that the pandemic's gone on for. I think if you look back to March 2020, a lot of organizations said, yes, we're going to collect your COVID responses or get you to keep a diary or something like that. But everyone thought the pandemic was going to be over a lot sooner than it has been. Um, And instead, we're still really in the midst of it and feeling the impact of it. So I think it'll be a little while yet before we really find out Kind of what we've collected and how people feel about it
0: and how supported those people who were doing the collecting work were. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way for anyone that's listening that feels like they're interested in this to sort of get in contact? Can they either maybe contact you via Twitter or what's the best way yeah, to reach out? Definitely, you can definitely get in touch via Twitter or
1: via email. For the Tron room from Dark Archives community of practice, we have a Discord. So.
0: I can share that link with anyone who's
1: interested in joining the community too.
0: And the other thing I wanted to talk about is the, as we mentioned sort of briefly, the ASA, the Australian Society of Archivists Conference was in September um, and it was Archives Amplified, Connect, Challenge, Reimagine. And it was supposed to be, you know, in Brizzy, but fortunately it sort of became a, then it was going to be a hybrid event, then it went online. I just, I'm just really intrigued because I didn't actually attend this year, but I, I was intrigued just from your experiences, how did you find the conference this year? Yeah, it certainly was a bit of a roller coaster getting there. Um, <laughs> I
1: have to give a shout out to Colleen, Sipho, and Kara Downs who we were our conference co-conveners because they uh, were amazing and kept pivoting as was required. I was really excited to attend it. I guess it's the first time. Our last conference in Australia was back in 2019, which feels like such a long time ago now. So it was really nice to be able to kind of come together as the profession we had over 300 attendees and you could really see that in the discussion in the plenary sessions that there was lots of people there really engaged with the topics and i've been to a, i've been really fortunate to go to a few online conferences but i was really happy with how the ASA one panned out i guess in the end i certainly felt like i got the professional Development that I would normally get from a conference. I also got as tired as I would normally get from a (laughs) conference. Um, I think that's important to acknowledge. I might have been sitting here in my UGG boots, but uh, you know, it's it's um, listening to to so many ideas and hearing the amazing work and things that people have been able to do during the past two years. Yeah, it was really inspiring, and it certainly gave me a lift and. It was so nice to just concentrate on that for a few days and kind of really block out a little bit about what was going on in the world at the time and just think about everything that everyone's been able to do and what we're going to try to do moving forward, continue to push the profession in a positive direction. So that was really exciting. I, yeah, I was really pleased that we were able to do that. I think we'll we'll aim for a hybrid conference next year because So far, the feedback's been really positive about the online component of it, and obviously it's certainly more accessible for some people to be able to attend in that format, so we don't want to take that away from people
0: moving forward. I definitely think that's been probably one positive thing that's come out of the last couple of years, is the sort of being some content being more accessible online, you know, freely available, you know, watching more webinars that maybe you couldn't travel to to get to see in the past, you know, because of expenses and things like that. So one thing that I, th- I think that the Australian Society of Archivists does really well is providing those sort of conference recordings on the YouTube channel. Will it be available this year for this conference as well? Or is that changing? I-
1: yeah, it, it will, but it will take a little bit longer okay. because of the way the conference platform set up. So anyone who registered to attend, they will get access in the platform for six months um, and then we'll probably start putting up some of the, certainly the plenary recordings. Yeah. So it'll just take a little bit longer because of the way it, it ran this year.
0: I think it, it's still, you know, it's always a good thing to have you know those conference. If you were able to attend or not, it's always good to sort of be able to revisit as well. Like even if it's a year later, and you think that was a really excellent. <laughs> there was a lot of content that you're taking in a during a conference, and sometimes it sort of takes a bit of time to sink in. But it's good to go be able to go back and revisit if, if need be, or, or things that you missed out on. So, yeah, for any listeners that are listening to this podcast, and we I know we have a lot of students that are following New Cardigan, so check out the Australian Society of Archivists YouTube channel because there's a lot of excellent conference papers there from years gone by, but also webinars and things that you can check out. But also, yeah, make sure you check out the amazing online courses as well that we've mentioned and there's others that you can, you know, I'm just giving a big um, shout-out to Australian <laughs> Society of Archivists here. Um, but <laughs> thank you, Nicola. This has been really fascinating talking to you today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk with you. And let's, like, really hopefully we can um, catch up at some point in person again, hopefully once we get out of lockdown and, Thank you very much for listening. Um, That was Nicola Laurent, who's our Senior Project Archivist at Find and Connect Web Resource at the University of Melbourne, also President of the Australian Society of Archivists and a new Professional Program Coordinator at the International Council of Archives. And you can follow Nicola on Twitter at Nicola C. Laurent. And thanks for listening. If you'd like to sort of check out more about New Cardigan, visit our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or our website, which is newcardigan.org watch out for, you know, future episodes from this series and check out our website. You can become a member, join the newsletter, and um, hopefully we'll see you at a future event in person or if not online. And remember folks, JFDI.